0: So uh, we've gone through this series, and all the while we've been asking people to, uh, when they have questions about something that is taught or, or something that just occurs to them, to send them in. We've been collecting these, and we'll be collecting some more here uh, this morning. Um, and here's the thing, is, is this is one of the things I, I most love about this community. In fact, this is, to be honest with you, I love to teach, I love to preach, but I love these Q&A times. Uh, they're just They're just fun. Uh, and we believe that it's important to ask questions. I know there's a lot of Christian contexts where folks get life from having the right answers. And you're not allowed to question it. you're supposed to just submit to it. But we think that our faith deepens when we question things. And that's important to probe further. The Lord gave us a mind for a reason. We're supposed to worship God with all of our mind. And the mind is supposed to be curious. And to investigate things. The Lord says, come, let us reason. And so we celebrate questions here. And so this is the time where uh, we ask folks to just, whatever's on their heart, whatever's on their mind, just send it in. And uh, Paul, is my bro, Paul Eddie, my covenant bro, you the man. Um, and uh, we, we give uh, our best answer as best we can. Um, sometimes we're on and sometimes Paul's really off, but we always try to do our best. And, and the thing is, is that what we share here uh, isn't necessarily something that you have to believe. It's just our perspective on things. Uh, so, so, what fits, take it. What doesn't fit, uh, you find something better. But uh, it's important for a community, I think, to do that. So, with that, we turn it over to the lovely Vanessa.
1: For your first question. We know that Lucifer took a bunch of angels with him when he fell. Is it possible that another high-ranking angel could fall again in the future?
0: There's been a couple shows along that line. Uh, what was the uh, one show oh. that had... Uh, the Prophecy? Yeah, Prophecy. Yeah. Oh, it was pretty, you know, pretty awesome. Yeah, I yeah. saw yeah. it a few And I believe with the movie's show, so uh, my answer would be yes. <laughs> Hollywood's convinced me. <laughs>
2: that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Revelation chapter 12 has this interesting, probably the most detailed text we have on the fall of Satan, Revelation chapter 12. And in, in those verses, it says that Satan, the great dragon, uh, swept a third of the stars from the sky with his tail. And that's where we get this, uh, through church history, we've got this number that one-third of the angels fell, because in the ancient world, uh, angels were often represented by stars. And so from this text, it's a symbolic way, many scholars think, uh, of sort of uh, claiming that Satan uh, led about one-third of the angels into rebellion with him. Um, But the question, could more fall? Now, could other high-ranking angels fall? Is an interesting one. Um, I don't think there's a lot of data, uh, really, in Scripture on this, though, there is uh, Psalms 82, right? Uh-huh. Where, uh, you have the interesting psalm, Psalm 82. It's a short psalm. But in it, it sounds like God is rebuking uh, what he calls the, the sons of God, which is another label frequently used for angels. And he's rebuking these creatures, saying that because you're oppressing the poor and because you're not doing what you should be doing, uh, like, smarten up, otherwise... You will um, die, like mere mortals. die like mere mortals, so it's, it sounds like he's talking they call he calls them like gods
0: creatures. there, yeah, and yeah. sons like gods there. So there, there is a passage where they're, they're, these angels clearly are not uh, irrevocably evil because he's still encouraging them to carry out their, their assignments, but they clearly aren't solidified on the good either, uh, because he's warning them if they don't carry it out, then there's going to be this judgment on them. Um, and that's where I think most people are. We're in a situation where you could go this way or you could go that way. But the thing is is that it's sort of wired into us that the longer we go down any road, the more the road defines us. There's an old ancient piece of wisdom. It's been said in a lot of different forms, but it basically goes like this. We start by making our choices. And if we persevere in our choices, they become habits. And then our habits become our character and our character becomes our destiny, and so we become the decisions that we make and if you 've been around for any length of time, lived very long you 've undoubtedly found that to be the case. Whatever you do, you get good at doing. Uh, it may be that, that obeying God in a particular area of temptation is really hard at first, but if you keep on doing that, it gets easier. On the other hand, if you resist God, uh, that may be, bring a lot of conviction on it at first, but if you keep on doing it, that, you get better at it. And, and uh, in time, you don't feel the Lord at all. So we, we become solidified. And if the angelic realm is wired the way we are, well then, it would explain why in, in, in all the passages that deal with heaven um, don't have any element of, of fear of anyone falling again. It, it seems like that they're in the end, uh, the angelic realm and human beings that are in Christ are going to be solidified where uh, we, we, we still choose to love God, but we do it because our character now. We're not just beings who choose love. We are loving beings. It's, it's, our, it's our identity. Um, and so I, I, I suspect that most angels, as so far as I can read the scripture, most angels are solidified either to the good or the bad, but there seems to be a class in between. Uh, but there come a time where I don't think there'll be any more worry about uh, another rebellion happening. Unless God were to create a whole new race of angelic beings or something like that, but he hasn't given us a word about that, so... Why speculate? Good question.
1: Um, I forgot to mention also, if you do not have a cell phone to text in questions, Stephanie is um, back there. Oh, she's raising her hand yes, Stephanie. Up. Hi, Stephanie. Yeah, and she is also taking questions. You can write them down and hand them to her. So I just want you guys to know that that is an option. For your next question, we are wondering... Although a literal seven-day creation may be figurative, are Adam and Eve to be considered figurative also?
0: Well, it's, it's really a hot topic right now. Yeah. Um, I just wrote a little pastoral piece. There's a book coming out called, I think it may be out already. It's uh, out now. Is it out now? Yeah. Uh, what's called The Historical Adam. It has 44 views. views on the historical Adam, um, representing different Christian perspectives on this. And uh, then they had uh, me and this other person give two pastoral responses. Uh, One saying that this is essential for orthodoxy, to believe in a literal Adam. And I argued that uh, while I am inclined to believe that there's a literal Adam, I don't think it's an essential aspect of orthodoxy. Uh, Because the role I see Adam playing in uh, Genesis 1 and 2 is more of a paradigmatic human. In fact, the word Adam means human. And so it could be that he's a figurehead uh, representing all of humanity uh, at the time um, but um, yeah so th- th- there, there's there's room to go both ways on that and, and the, which way you go will depend on a number of factors how much weight do you give to paul and jesus when they refer to adam uh, does that entail that it was literal how do you reconcile this with science and a number of things like that um, so what's what you do. so i'm inclined i'm inclined to think that there's a literal adam uh, I don't think, though, it's a matter of, uh, essential for orthodoxy. Uh, I wouldn't affect my faith at all if I were to change that that opinion. And for me, the, the, ma- the main reason is because of the way Jesus and Paul refer to him. Uh, it seems like that entails that he's, he's literal. But it's one of those kind of beliefs where I, I wouldn't bet the house on it. How about you? What's your view? Yeah.
2: Well, so it's a, it's a good opportunity, I think, to remind us all again that whenever any of the questions we deal with in theology or the Bible like this, that to have in mind the sort of concentric circles we've often talked about here at Woodland Hills with Jesus at the center, that's what we hang, that's our anchor, that after that come the dogmas or what are uh, essential beliefs to the Christian worldview. That, that if you mess with those, you start deconstructing what it means to, be, to think Christianly. Uh, C.S. Lewis called that mere Christianity and his book uh, really captures that well. Then doctrines, which are usually theories about those dogmas, and then finally opinions. And so where would you kind of put... This on that schema. Uh, to me, it's over in the opinion realm. Opinion realm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm with you. I'm inclined to think that there, that there was an historical Adam and Eve as well, um, and I think there's a variety of ways we could talk about that happening. With how do you like relate that to science? Right, that's the big challenge today. But um, but I, I guess I'm with you that uh, it's probably at the opinion or doctrine level. Certainly not at the dogma level.
0: There's a number of ways of, of uh, reconciling the two. Um, you know, and those are just things to read about and explore and, and try it out. But it's the kind of thing where I think it's really wise to allow people to just work that out on their own and not have a dogmatic stance on it and give people space to grow and change and uh, whatever that entails.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the reasons I think we can say that, that, you know, while we're not sure or while we're inclined this way, part of the challenge is with any biblical uh, issue is what is the genre of the text we're dealing with? And the text of Genesis 1 to 3 is what we call creation narrative. And the, the thing about ancient creation narratives is that they frequently combined what you'd call more symbolic, or Greg's word, paradigmatic uh, stuff, and sometimes historical mm. stuff, and then mixed them together. And so it's not an easy genre to always know, well, which is more paradigmatic and symbolic and which is more historical. Mm. That's the, the tough nature of creation texts. So that's why I think this text... And
0: is- it's not a new phenomenon either, uh, where y- y- you look at Gregory of Nyssa or Augustine or all the early church fathers... Most of them took Adam and Eve to be literal, but not all did. Um, and, but they thought, most thought that the serpent was symbolic for Satan and that the, the forbidden tree was symbolic. And so in ancient narratives, you combined literal and figurative, and it just kind of meshed together. Uh, but they also had a diversity of opinions on this. So it's nothing new.
1: Great. Why does the church today put such an emphasis on singing? Studying, sharing the gospel, doing good works, and praying all make sense because Jesus did these things. But Jesus is never seen singing in worship toward God.
0: Wow. I've studied this, and it's because he had a terrible voice. <laughs> he was tone deaf. He the son of God, but he just couldn't sing. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that, that it's, it's true. We don't have any record of this, but... Um, the Psalms mm-hmm. in Scripture are all about singing, making joyful noise unto the Lord, and, and uh, they did that all the time in synagogues. That was just part of the, the Jewish tradition, and Jesus went to the synagogue, so that's where you find him singing. Um, and uh, since we don't have any accounts of him attending the synagogue, or what went on in the synagogue, we don't have any accounts of him. Well, you we have one account where he stands up to read uh, in, in Nazareth, his, his inaugural sermon. But other than that, we just don't have any accounts of it. So I wouldn't take the silence of the Gospels about Jesus singing to be any argument uh, against singing or anything like that. Um, you've got the Psalms, and I think that's enough.
2: Yeah, that's the point. I mean, Jesus clearly is pro-Psalms, and uh, Psalms is the hymn book of, of, of Israel. And so uh, I think you put those two together in a logical deduction as Jesus would have been singing Psalms regularly
0: And the thing is that there is, we've talked about this quite quite a bit here, but there is such a power uh, when people come together and they are of one mind and one heart and they have one focus and they're singing to the Lord. There is just, you know, Scripture says the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. And um, we should be, I think, worshiping God all the time. Uh, You know, learn to integrate praise and worship into every aspect of our life. But there is a real value, a, a power uh, and people coming together and, uh, and and doing it like that. Uh, God shows up and things can happen there that otherwise wouldn't happen. So I think it's a powerful thing. Yeah.
1: When Jesus returns, will there still be unbelievers? And if so, what will happen to them?
0: Paul's a specialist on this one. So go, go ahead, you take it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the rapture. Well, uh... <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly... You know, There's no indication that before Christ's return, there'll be sort of a mass, uh, like entire world turning to follow him. Um, there's no indication that that's the case. So I suppose just logically you can assume that when he returns, uh, among the human beings here will be those who don't, don't believe in him.
0: Jesus actually asked the opposite question. When the Son of yeah. Man returns, will, will he find faith on earth? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: So they'll all be unbelievers. Yeah. You know, he says um, in what's often called the Little Apocalypse, it's a, a teaching of Jesus that's found in all three of the first Matthew, Mark, and Luke in different chapters. And in there, he, he says things like, um, it, you know, that uh, things will be tough, uh, that, that, that uh, tensions arise, and, and will, will he find faith? So, yeah, there will be, there'll be unbelievers, no doubt. Um, what will happen to them, of course, that's, that's Jesus' job and, and his concern. He, he, be, he became as part of uh, ascending to the right hand of the Father. We're told that Jesus now becomes the judge of all the earth. And so that's, uh, I'm with Abraham when Abraham said at one point in Genesis, uh, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And I want to say, Yes, he will. Um, I don't know exactly how Jesus will deal with all that, but that's because how I'm. Haven't you read the I... book
0: of Revelation? call Paul,
2: <laughs> he's going to slaughter everybody. It's right well, there. He comes back, but, and you, he but you told them all. us that wasn't going to happen, Greg. So I'm very confused yeah. now.
0: He's going to slaughter lot. them, uh, but he's not going to slaughter people. It's that sword that comes out of the mouth. And so, if, if, you, if you weren't here uh, last week, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> but uh, um, get the sermon from last week. It, it's all about see. What, you have these left behind books and left behind movies, and they're. You know, almost pornographically violent, uh, and it's all about the slaughter fest that happens, and that's kind of the scare tactic to get people to repent and all that. Um, and I, you know, when I first came into the Christ, that's what our church taught, and it's like Mark of the Beast is going to get you, and you're going to fry and all that. But in, in the book of Revelation, it just makes no sense if you try to read it literally. The sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, and you just try to picture him fighting off all the enemies with a sword in his mouth. And if he's fighting a battle in the 21st century, he's hardly going to use a sword in the first place. And why are they riding on horses? This isn't meant to be literal. He's slaying, he's speaking the word of truth. Six times in the book of Revelation, he shows up and it, it, it's the word of truth. The, the word of God coming out of his mouth that slays nations as they're defined under the, the, the authority of Satan. The, the ones who were deceived. He's the, the deceiver who leads all the nations astray. And in slaying them, he converts them because uh, they show up then in the New Jerusalem. And the kings, which are so nasty throughout the book of Revelation, these nasty kings who are part of the Babylon system, well, they get slain too, but they show up in the, in, in, at the end in, in Revelation. So uh, Revelation actually gives us a very optimistic uh, uh, a- a- anticipation that there's going to be, when he returns, yeah, it's going to be a warfare against lies, and, and uh, you know, how exactly that's going to unfold, I don't know. But there'll be a display of the same kind of glory that's revealed on the cross. A different Jesus doesn't show up. He's the same Jesus, but now he's glorified in a way that all the world can see, and there's a chance for people to acknowledge him, and uh, that's when he's going to. And everything that's not consistent with the love of God, I think, is going to be burned up. I mean, that's also part of what you hear. And how that exactly is going to happen, I don't know. But uh, the world will be purged of evil. what a glorious day that will be.
1: John the Baptist was baptizing people for the remission of their sins. Why was Jesus baptized if John? Why, why was Jesus baptized by John if he had no sin?
2: Good question. That's what John asked even. Yeah, John. Uh, Jesus is coming to be baptized by John, and John says no. And and, and John's response is theologically correct because John's baptizing sinners, and he knows the one person that doesn't need to be baptized is Jesus. And yet Jesus insists that, that he be baptized he, he just keeps persisting to fulfill all right to fulfill all righteousness to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. Um, and so finally john relents and baptizes him um, and uh if you just sort of take that one one narrative in isolation it could be mysterious but i think that's part of the, the point of the series that greg did is if you take the individual stories of the bible and lift them up into the perspective of the meta-narrative the big story then it begins to make sense and what you see Jesus doing through the whole New Testament story is he's consistently identifying with us as sinners. And this is really the first place where sort of objectively you see someone saying, you shouldn't do that. And Jesus says, no, I should. Because his identifying with us is the whole way that he's going to save us. Ultimately, he's going to identify by actually taking the sin of the world on himself at the cross. But even in his baptism, he's already beginning to identify, I think, as sinners. As, uh, part of us collectively as sinners, and he becomes uh, our Savior in that very act.
0: So the irony is that even though John didn't want to baptize him, John himself gives the reason that Jesus was being baptized, because he just proclaimed, this is the Lamb of God who takes Mm -hmm. away the sin of the world. And so Jesus does it uh, as a way of identifying with uh, all of us who need baptism and who are sinners.
1: Do you think that there are territorial spirits that could claim a family as their own, even for multiple generations, and wreak havoc on the family members?
0: Hmm. You know what's interesting is that that Jesus, at one point, um, he's talking. He gives this analogy of the uh, a, a spirit that's cast out of the house. And then it roams around looking for another place to dwell. And if it can't find any place, well then uh, it it gets six other demons, more wicked than itself, and comes back and then re-inhabits that house. Right? Um, And then Jesus says, the punchline of that is, he's not talking about an individual. He says, so shall it be with this this generation. Uh, It's like, he's saying that this generation is uh, one that is strongly demonized. Um, and, And so I... Well, I'm hesitant to at all say anything definitive about territorial spirits because we just don't have a whole lot to go on. There's a few little verses that seem to suggest something like that, or generational spirits, or, you know, it's really important not to get off in the wild speculation on this. But I do think that there can be uh, um, demonic spirits that somehow get a hold of a family or a generation um, and um, can, can hassle them. What's even more important than that, however, is to know what the family can do to get it off their back. And that is to take authority over this in Jesus' name and apply the victory of the cross. Because these things are already defeated. Uh, they only have the power of the lie to go on. That's why they're the, the, you know, he's the prince of darkness. He needs the darkness of deception to operate. And so you've got to know, however the, the, uh, the oppressive forces get there isn't the important question. The important question is what you can do to get free from them. And you do that by taking authority over them and renouncing them in Jesus' name.
2: Amen. Amen. Nothing more to add?
1: (laughs) With the cross being so central, was the resurrection necessary?
2: Mm. Wouldn't know about the cross if it wasn't for the resurrection. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, It's interesting how through much, well, not much. A good chunk of church history at least um, the idea of what how jesus saves us what he had to do to save us uh, and particularly in the last number of centuries the focus has been the death of jesus so much so that for some christians it's almost like as you talk with them about so why did how did jesus save us his death the cross becomes the single answer um, so it's like he could have showed up on a you know, monday died on a tuesday and everything would have been fine um, but when you read the New Testament, and certainly through the earlier, early part of church history, you get the sense that there was more than just the death necessary. There was his life, first of all. Jesus didn't just die for our sins, he lived for our sins. And then, yes, he died for our sins, but he also rose again to defeat our cosmic enemies, sin and Satan and the power of death. That these were things that had to be defeated, and that the resurrection was the defeat, was the vindication of God. And so... Um, As Greg has written about uh, in in different places, there's a a, a richness to Jesus' entire life, death and resurrection, that's absolutely essential for the entire salvation that he's brought to us. Not just the, 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 the death.
0: So when I talk about the centrality of the cross, I'm not at all meaning that the death taken in isolation is the real important thing and everything else is superfluous, rather the cross is the theme that sums up everything Jesus was about. That self-sacrificial love is the thread that ties it all together. But it ties it all together. It's all, it's all, what Jesus does and who Jesus is, is all part of this. And, and the resurrection and the cross are really two sides of the same event. Um, it's just that the resurrection is, is the power, it's a manifestation of the victory of this way of living. The, man, the, 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 the victory of this kind of love. Um, the reason why I I am so insistent about how the the, the meaning of the resurrection isn't even connected to the cross. The cross is the thematic center is because beginning around the 4th and 5th century, the resurrection began to be separated from the the cross where it became sort of a triumphalistic uh, uh, thing that made the cross now superfluous. So it's like now what Jesus did um, he did for us by dying on the cross, but he did that so that now we don't have to uh, imitate that cross way of living. We, we live in the benefit of the resurrection without the need to carry the cross. Whereas, and see, that is, I think, that, that's where things really began to go downhill. Uh, because now Christianity became this thing, it's just about how we are the recipients and, and we're not you know, really called to Christ-likeness and, and things of that sort. In the New Testament, when we live in the power of the resurrection... It empowers us to live a cruciform life. It empowers us to live a Christ-like life. So it's not a victory that 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 keeps us away from carrying the cross. It's a victory that enables us to carry the cross. You see, and so uh, living a cruciform life where you're manifesting the generosity of God and and, and the other-oriented love of God, it's absolutely essential. If you're living in the resurrection power, it's going to look like Calvary because the resurrection is the victory of that kind of living. That kind of living leads to this victory. That's how I'd say it.
1: That's a great way to say it, too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) The book of Revelation claims that all things will be restored in the end. But most people will end up taking the broad road to destruction. These two things seem to be contradictory. Mm-hmm. How can all things be restored and yet some people will still be in hell?
2: Yeah, Greg.
0: Well, I yeah, Greg.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, here's how I would answer this, uh, and this is just uh, my answer. It doesn't have to be yours, but yeah, yeah, I, I find this tension uh, in the, running throughout the New Testament, where on the one hand. Um, you've got some, some passages that, that seem pessimistic about the, the fate of the majority of humans, um, and, and there's all, all this warning about that. On the other hand, you find other passages that are, are really optimistic. Even, they, they, it sounds universalistic, as all were in Adam, all will be in Christ, for example. Um, and and it, even the book of Revelation has all, you know, all the nations coming in and all the kings coming in. It sounds very, very triumphalistic. Um, and so how, how do you reconcile th- those, th- those two things? Um, and here's where I pass it on to Paul. So, go ahead. <laughs> no, oh, no, no. Know, the, the way, I, the way I, I see it is like this. I think that if there was a place called hell that went on forever and ever and ever, where you have multitudes of, of angelic beings and human beings suffering consciously... For no purpose other than to experience pain. God's not trying to teach them anything or redeem them or whatever. He just inflicts them, keeps them in existence for the purpose of experiencing pain. Uh, if, that, if that is going along as a reality, all the while there's heaven, um, then I don't know how you would say that all things are reconciled to, to, uh, to, to God. You have an eternal aspect of reality that's not reconciled to God. Um, And so I think that that traditional view of hell as eternal conscious suffering does pose a problem for those passages that say that all things in heaven and earth will be reconciled. Uh, I don't think it's inconsistent to say that there'll be folks that are eternally put to death. The wages of sin is death. And that is unending. Um, Those who, who are absolutely irrevocably set against God, for whom there's no hope of ever turning... Uh, if, if God annihilates them or just withdraws the gift of existence, which is the same thing, um, then, then all that exists is reconciled to God. Because all evil has been purged. All evil has been uh, done away with, been burned up. And so the, the view I'm most inclined towards, it's called annihilationism. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, there's six passages that they talk about the eternal damnation or the eternal fate of those who are lost. And I interpret those to be like the passage that talks about eternal redemption. It's not, well, in, in Hebrews 9, it's not that we'll be eternally in the process of being redeemed, because that would require us to be eternally sinning, which I don't think we're going to be doing. But it means that once we're redeemed, we're forever redeemed. So also, the wages of sin is death. And, and, and I think that once, once you've forfeited the opportunity to share an eternal life with God, and you become irrevocably hardened to him, there's, there's no second chance. It's forever. And in that sense, they're eternally lost. Um, but that, that means there won't be, off, off the ages and ages and ages and all eternity, a, a dark a, a kind of realm of existence coexisting with heaven. Uh, that would kind of dampen heaven, I would think. Just knowing that there's uh, trillions of people who are in pain, even if they deserved it, uh, it would kind of dampen the, the joy and the victory of what the kingdom is all about. You, are you annihilating So, Mr. cautious here.
2: So, I think you and I would agree. There's certain views of hell that just are not um, not copacetic to the, the center of Jesus' Copacetic, see, your word, right? And so, for, I mean, so many, so often the the, the the traditional view of hell has more to do with medieval uh, craziness I'll than it does fire. with, yeah. I mean, burning and roasting forever and demons torturing you. I mean, Matthew 25, Jesus says that that hell, whatever it is, was actually created. For Satan and the demons, not that that's going to be where they set up camp and torture people. That's and like basically Jesus saying it wasn't originally intended for humans. It was intended for fallen angels, but those who align themselves with that kingdom of darkness, that that is their place. And so, um, if I I still wrestle with this question, I I don't know where I stand on it. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book The Great Divorce has a different picture of hell, whereas he puts it in another point. He says it's locked from the inside not the outside. And uh, to Greg's pretty comfortable annihilationism. I think Lewis has another potential portrait that is worth considering. And it's not that people are in, in hell, knocking and pounding on the door trying to get into heaven, but rather, even if God invited them in, they would say no, because that would require sub- serving and worshiping God, and that's one thing they're not about. And so they've actually chosen uh, mm-hmm. To lock themselves in on the inside, as Lewis puts it, is it miserable? Yes, but for them, believe it or not, it's less miserable than being in heaven worshiping God. And so that's it's, it's, um, that's another option, I think. Uh, the whole roasting on a turning barbecue spit forever—that that's not Jesus. I don't
0: maybe for a thousand years or so. There's certain people, <laughs> yeah, but they, they have a while, to get boring. Like, and C.S. Lewis, actually, CS Lewis says that. Uh, uh, the curious thing about hell is it's so close to nothing. You know, he, he has this idea that it shrinks up into this almost you know, subatomic piece of a uh, particle. It's almost, almost nothing. He was almost an annihilationist, but... Because everyone's like, turned in on themselves. Yeah, yeah, it, all it, it's everyone's self-centered, so it's like, it's like dark matter. It, it just it turns in on itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: What is apocalyptic literature? Could you give a non-canonical example in order to help us better understand how to read it?
2: I talked yeah. on that last week, so you, you, you give it oh, a shot. Yeah. So apocalypse uh, is, is really just the, the Greek word for, to reveal, uh, revelation. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, non-canonical uh, examples of this Jewish literature that aren't in our Bibles, that aren't in our canon. Um, you think of First Enoch is probably the most famous one. This was probably written, oh, maybe 150 uh, to 200 years before Jesus. And by the time Jesus and the New Testament are being written, this book of First Enoch is well-known in the Jewish world and actually is shaping the, the thought of other apocalyptic texts like our book of Revelation and things like that. Um, and it's quite a sizable book. I mean, you can mm-hmm. buy it at Barnes & Noble, and it's uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, how you know apocalypse is several key characteristics. One, the backdrop of apocalyptic literature is cosmic warfare, spiritual warfare. So you're almost always going to find in apocalyptic literature uh, angels and demons, uh, God and the kingdom of darkness. Um, secondly, in apocalyptic literature, usually it involves a, the, the author, whoever the author is, um, uh, writing as if they've seen a vision that God's given them, a dreamer vision about something that's going to happen in the future where, where God vindicates his people. And so really it's, what it is, it's literature for the oppressed, who are, who now have a word of hope for the future, which I think you touched on that. This is what Revelation's all about. Um, and thirdly, it's very symbolic. Um, a lot of scholars believe that apocalyptic literature was written by persecuted people in the midst of persecution. And so part of why it's so symbolic is they, let's say if you're in Rome and Rome's oppressing you and your text falls into the hands of Romans, you don't want them to be able to know what you're talking about. Because that could come back to bite you. And so it's highly symbolic, uh, lots of uh, numbers with significant meanings, but your average reader, unless they know the keys, aren't going to know what you're talking about. So it's it's a strategic literature in that sense as well.
0: Good.
1: Good. If two people are praying for a situation with two different outcomes, how can the person whose prayer was not answered be encouraged to seek an answer through prayer again?
2: variation of hmm. unanswered prayer.
0: Yeah. Well, the question, it almost, it's, it's almost like, We have a misunderstanding it, but it's like there's a contest or something. People are praying, like who, who's God going to favor? And then, you know, A loses, B's prayer is answered. So then the question is, how can this person ever pray again? <laughs> I lost. Um, I don't know, but, but here's what I would say. Uh, that um, look, there is... We teach on this quite a bit around here, but when you pray, it's, it's not just a matter of whether you have faith or whether God answers your prayer or wants to answer your prayer. And we always tend to reduce the, those all prayer down to that. Either God wills it, in which case it's going to get done, or God didn't will it, in which case it won't get done. And if God didn't will it, or, or, or there's someone who would say, well, God could will it and still wouldn't happen because you, you lack faith. But if you just have enough faith, well, then, then your prayer will be answered. And so either, when the prayer is not answered, you either, you either end up blaming God or you end up blaming yourself. Um, God, because he didn't give you what you wanted, it wasn't his will, or yourself, because you lacked faith. And that is just a very simplistic way of looking at things. I talk about this a lot in, in um, the book, uh, Is God to Blame? Uh, there are a multitude, if you understand that God created this cosmos and populated it with free agents, um, and to be a free agent means you've got to have some irrevocable say-so. God can't just withdraw or cancel your say-so uh, because he doesn't like it. Because if he did that, it's clear he didn't give you that say-so, that free will. And, and when, you, when you work out the implications of this, it means that um, every decision ever made throughout history is like a pebble dropped in a pond and has ripple effects that impact other people. That must be allowed to play itself out if, in fact, God's giving of free will was, was authentic. And that means there's, a, there's a trillions of variables that affect what comes to pass. Um, the, the, the line of causation, going back to explain anything, you know, why are my glasses sitting there? Why are these kind of glasses? Why am I wearing glasses in the first place? Why do I even need glasses? Well, you'd have to know the whole history of the world and all the influences that affected everything that, that was relevant to those glasses ending up here on this table. Prayer is a powerful say-so that God's given His people. When we pray, we're, 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 we're speaking and... and uh, you know, partnering with God to to bring about a giant ripple effect into the, the 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 world. It's a kingdom ripple effect. Okay, so we're unleashing kingdom influence here, but it doesn't cancel all the other variables. Like all of a sudden, everyone who has a free will that could ever you know push back on it is canceled. Uh, no, it, it it doesn't work like that. It's an influential power, but not a coercive power. And so when you when prayer isn't answered or it, 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 we don't see that it's answered the way we prayed it, uh, we just got to know that that. If we were omniscient and knew all the variables that affected the entire history of the creation, we would know why. But we don't. We, we, we see a little fragment, a little particle, on one snowflake on the top of an almost infinite iceberg. Um, and, um, uh, and so we just have to say we don't know. But, but don't blame God for it, and don't blame yourself for it. It's, just, it's a whole lot more complex than that.
2: That's, that's so important, because it's so easy to turn prayer into... Um it's a spiritualized magic. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 and so the questions, uh, which I think all of us can relate to that question because all of us living in this culture, uh, this culture does frequently turn prayer into magic. Like if you know the right formula or if you do the right thing, then it should work as though it's some magical incantation. But um, try flipping that question into something that's what we'd say more earthly, more, more uh, everyday life sort of thing. That'd um, be sort of like asking the question, uh, if two teams go and play a basketball game and one of them loses, why would they ever think they should play again and, and ever win? Well, that's what basketball is. Uh, like, teams compete and one loses, but that means you hope you win the next day. right? I mean, there's no magic to it. There's, there's forces and there's different skill levels and there's all variables, like what Greg's talking about. Prayer, at least Greg and I would offer the idea, prayer is not unsimilar to quote-unquote doing things in the spiritual realm like we do things in the physical realm but it's in the spiritual realm Mm -hmm. and the way you do things in the spiritual realm is you speak you speak to god that's requesting god to partner with uh, him in things he's doing with his kingdom and you speak to things which we frequently don't do in our cultural context but the new testament authors did when they came up for example peter or john came up to a a lame man at the temple they simply said be healed in jesus name they spoke to that in the name of Jesus, and this man stood up and walked. And so prayer was just the way you do things for the kingdom in the spiritual realm, not magic. And uh, that, that variables piece is really, really crucial here.
0: And this is why, it's, you know, we, we said it earlier that this passage, Jesus says, when the, the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the, on the earth? Um, he's referring there to the persistence of prayer. Uh, he says, when you pray, pray with persistence. You know, keep on knocking. Um, because some tasks require a lot of persistence. Now, there is a time where God may tell you to let go of that one. You know, you, you, as long as you have it on your heart, you pray about it, but be open to God saying, okay, look, at the, the window of opportunity is passed on that one, now move on. So we've got to let go of that. But uh, uh, persistence can be, uh, sometimes maybe we, we, we quit too early, and I just needed some more uh, pushing that, that, that need to go on. So the thing is, it takes a lot of faith. And this is so vital, because prayer is our unique It's a unique kingdom activity that God's given to us. A unique power that God's given to us. And I I suspect we don't access it nearly enough. Uh, But it's important to see that it's part of faith to devote time to praying, to talking to Abba Father, and to partnering with Him, and and to do it with with, with others. Uh, Knowing that, um, you'll often have to just take it by faith that that prayer was heard. And that it left the world a better place. It, there's more kingdom in the world because you prayed than there would have been even if, if you hadn't prayed. Though you may not see, often we do not see, the results that we wanted. Uh, but just trust that James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Uh, yeah, and, and just uh, find the reward in that. You're partnering with God to breathe the kingdom into the world.
1: Great. Well, these always go so incredibly fast. I just, I cannot believe what time it is. Um, So first of all, I want to thank all of you for your participation. Lots of really, really good questions that came in. And I really want to encourage each of you to download the sermons off of the website because we're not repeating any questions, but we're collecting all the questions. So if yours wasn't answered tonight, it might be answered tomorrow. So definitely think about doing that. Um, And just thank you again for your participation. Awesome questions. All right, are you guys ready for your last one? Let's do it. Can you do it? All right.
0: We've got one minute.
1: But <laughs> we'll it's Saturday
0: night. You know we're loose here. It's Saturday yeah. night. So. <laughs> Take your time.
1: Okay. Um, how can you continue to trust God and follow His direction when He seems to constantly lead us through trials? How can you trust someone who continually mm. hurts you?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That that's a, a good question. That. I find a lot of people have been so... I mean, they thought God took their child. The death of their child was because God... Some friend told them God needed the baby even more in heaven than down here. Or, uh, you know, God's behind the cancer or God's behind everything. And see, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but it seems like this, this question is presupposing... Uh, that everything that happens is God doing it, all the trials, it's God doing it, you know, all the hardships. And if you thought God was behind all the hardships, well, then it'd be easy to ask that question. How do you trust a God who, uh, you know, a couple I knew, they had, were struggled with infertility for years, and they're just about ready to, uh, you know, give up and, and go with adoption. But then she gets miraculously uh, pregnant, and it was just like, like a miracle. And they talked about it being a miracle, and... Then, in the process of childbirth, the baby, the umbilical cord got wrapped around the baby's neck, and the baby ended up uh, being stillborn. Um, and it, her question was, what kind of God answers your prayer for a child by giving you a child, but then, right as the child's coming into the world, chokes it to death? I, 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 I have trouble trusting that God. I mean, what, 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 what's up with this? It seems like a capricious. And then when the one professor told her, well, you know, maybe God's there's like, he's trying to tell you a lesson. And maybe in time, you know, you'll see what that lesson is. And when she told me this, I said, what kind of God does that? Where it's like, hey, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to kill your kid to teach you a lesson, but I'm not going to tell you what the lesson is. You figure it out. And maybe you figure it out, then I'll give you another child. Um, it's like an Al Capone God. Guess why? I'm killing you. you know, it's like, uh, no, see, this is one of the reasons I think it's so, I, I think it's so important that we under, see, this war, see the world as a, as, a, as a war zone. We are in a world where... We're free agents, and there's cosmic free agents, and there's a war going on, and a whole lot that comes down the pipe isn't God's doing. It, you know that, that farmer in the parable of Jesus. You know when there's wheat and tares that were sown together, he goes and tells the farmer, and the farmer says, "You know this an enemy has done." Uh, you know this wasn't a friend of mine who planted tares in my in, in my uh, harvest. This is this, this an enemy has done, and it's so important that we understand that there's an enemy out there, and and, and we're able to identify what comes from God and what comes from the enemy. Every good gift comes from the Father above. Every, every piece of crap ultimately comes from the enemy. And I'm not saying there's Satan behind every tornado or every, you know, parasite or something, but, but the, the, the whole realm of corruption and then the fallen wills of, of humans, ultimately everything in this world that doesn't reflect the character of God is the result, directly or indirectly, the result of wills other than God. And when you have that, that, that perspective, uh, you don't have to blame God for... Uh, um, the The trials that get sent your way. A, a good sermon on this is one that we heard from Jessica Kelly uh, a couple months ago, uh, who uh, had just embraced a, a warfare worldview uh, just prior to the time when she found out that her four-year-old son had this uh, brain tumor. That that brain tumor that turned out to be fatal, um, and it made all the difference in the world to her that she didn't have to think that that was God's doing. Uh, this was a casualty of war, and. Um, You can take casualties of war when you really trust that God wins in the end. Mm -hmm. And every separation is temporary. But to think that God was behind it makes God really hard to trust. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks, you guys. Uh, Really good questions.
1: All right. Here's your first question since god committed the earth and the animal kingdom into our hands does god intervene in animal suffering when we pray for them does god still intervene even if we don't pray hmm.
2: you like i,
0: I like animals Do you like animals you better like animals because god likes animals throughout the bible you find god has, has has got this love for animals i don't think we pay enough attention to that um yeah, he uh, makes covenant with, with animals. In fact, the animals are included in God's covenant with humans because humans are uh, commissioned to uh, be extending God's loving dominion over the animals and the uh, er- earthly kingdom. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I believe that uh, God He's given us the power of prayer to affect the world uh, as we partner with him. And since he loves animals, I think prayers for animals are, are, um, are important to him. And they make a difference. Uh, I think God is, is always, he's all good, all loving, and so he's always working to to bring about as much good and as much kingdom as is possible in any given moment, given the parameters of free will and other things that he's set in place, but he's always working to maximize that, and I think that's true even of of the, the animal kingdom. So my answer to that question is, is yes. I think it's, I, I pray for my dog. I just did this morning. Something's wrong with him. He's looking kind of sick, acting weird, and so uh, pray for my little Max. I love that little guy. <laughs>
2: I'm with you on that. I mean, yeah, I mean, Noah's covenant, um, as God is speaking to Noah in Genesis uh, chapter 9 about this covenant where he's promising never to flood the earth uh, to destroy all life again, he says, This covenant isn't just for you, Noah. It's not even just for your descendants, it's for every living creature. And Mm -hmm. so God promises there. Animals are on his mind. And um, I think frequently the the vision we have uh, in kind of contemporary. American Christianity, even of heaven, is uh, leaving anything that's like earthly uh, creation and going to this ghostly realm uh, up in the sky somewhere, which is far more like Plato than it is like the Bible. Uh, But in, uh, for example, Romans 8, Paul talks about uh, God uh, going to redeem the entire creation, that the whole creation, which would include animals, is groaning, waiting for its redemption, And you look at uh, some passages like Isaiah, where it talks about what the new heavens new earth will be like. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Like, even peace uh, will come to the animal kingdom. And so, absolutely, absolutely.
1: All right, here's your next question. Did God intervene in evolution to create modern human beings, or did we just evolve? At what point were we truly human? Will there be Neanderthals in heaven?
0: (laughs) I hope so because I'm sharing the stage with him. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You I served him it. up that I one. I could tell it. I could know it. <laughs> uh, what a softball! Uh, that, that's, that's good. Well, you know, if we're made in the image of God, it seems to me that that uh, that means, if it means anything, uh, it's. It means that we're not the result of just chance. The idea that it was just chance, random processes that uh, took place, and we just kind of happened to be here, um, I think would, would uh, rule out our, our being made intentionally by the image of God. We're, if it means anything to be made in the image of God, it means that, that there's God's purpose behind uh, the process that brought us about. And so my own view is, and people interpret this differently. Depends on how literal, figurative you want to interpret Genesis one and other passages. But um, I, I think God very much was involved in the evolutionary process in bringing humans about. I also, however, believe that God wasn't the only one involved in the evolutionary process. Um, I wrote an essay on this in a book called Creation Made Free, uh, called Evolution as Cosmic Conflict. And I argue on the basis of uh, largely the Gospels, uh, but really the entire New Testament, where they, uh, they, they uh, see that um, uh, certain afflictions, physical afflictions, blindness, and, and other things, are at least indirectly, if not directly, the result of demonic interference. Which tells me that the, the nature as we find it now has been corrupted by the influence of demonic powers. And, and yet, on one level, th- those things would just be part of the natural processes of this world—that um, um, they, they, they sometimes randomly produce things like disease and, and parasites or whatever. So, on that basis, if you look, if, as I look at the evolutionary process from the perspective of the Gospels, I have reason to think that there was a corrupting influence uh, involved in that as well. And so, I, I, I see the—and that would explain why there's animal suffering before human beings ever come around. Um, I don't think that was part of God's original design. A lot of people would argue against that. But my own conviction is that, that uh, insofar as we see uh, a movement towards, towards life in the evolutionary process, that's God's influence. But insofar as we see uh, hideous uh, creatures <coughs> created out of this and, and destruction and decay and death and violence, uh, that's the result of the corruption of, of, uh, of fallen angelic powers. That's one way of reading it. Yeah,
2: yeah. The other thing I'd add is, is th- this is, uh, continues to be one of the hottest, uh, potentially controversial areas for, for Bible-believing Christians, uh, because I think for the last hundred years, um, so many of us have assumed that if we say evolution, what we're thinking of is naturalistic evolution. Yeah. It's uh, uh, a neo-Darwinian sort of thing where God's not involved, and so I'm imagining uh, certainly when I grew up in, in the churches I grew up in, in the Twin Cities, if I had heard the answer Greg just gave, he said evolution and getting he didn't, he didn't slam herodic. it. You know, and it's like... Um, but what he did say is absolutely essential. That it's not naturalistic evolution, meaning, you know, God's not involved. But if there was evolution, then we're simply talking about uh, the process by which God chose to create. What's really clear in Genesis is that God is creator. How he created is an open question, right? And those are the things I think Christians can disagree on, and we can have difference of opinion. Um, But uh, that he's creator is a different question from how he created.
1: Okay, here's your next question. Which person of the Trinity will we experience or interact with in heaven?
2: Take it away, Paul. <laughs> oh, the, the Neanderthal is supposed to answer that one. <laughs> You're a theological Neanderthal. Oh, okay.
0: Let's pray about that yeah. one. I'll take a stab. You um, go ahead. You know, the, the process, what I see happening uh, through the New Testament is that um, it actually was, was, was captured best by this group of theologians in the 4th century called the Cappadocians. Uh, they These brothers who were just great free of theologians. And they, they said all of God's activity is from the Father, through the Son, and consummates in the Spirit. So God comes to us as in his infinite self, his Father, uh, uh, becoming finite in the Son. And then we come to acknowledge the Father in the Son through the power of the Spirit. And then all movements of us towards God are they start in the Spirit, the Spirit has to regenerate our hearts and open our eyes, and then we go to the Father through the Son. So Ephesians 2, 18, for example, says that we all have access in one Spirit to go to God through, uh, through, through, through the Word, through Jesus. And so God to us is from the Father through the Son in the Spirit, and us to God is in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And I assume that that's going to be, something like that's going to be true in, in, in heaven, um, we're, we're interacting with all three. But when I think of, of the Trinity, I don't think of it as, as three separate forms of God. Um, there's only one incarnation, and that is Jesus. So I see Jesus as sort of the visible face of, of God, and the Father as the infinitude of God, and the Spirit as the indwellingness of God. And so every movement of God, I think now and throughout eternity, is, it has this tri- we're caught up in the flow of the triune God. I sometimes refer to dancing in the Trinity, where we participate in God's own self-perfect, uh, uh, loving relationships. And that the way that we experience that is God in us, and then we see God then coming to us through the, the, uh, Jesus, the face of God. Irenaeus says that the Son is the visibility of the Father, and the Father is the invisibility of the Son. Uh, the Father is the infinitude of the Son. So that's how I would construe it. It's a pretty good answer. You like that? Yeah. All right. We'll leave it at that then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was good. All right. Is it important that small groups, or is it important that in the small groups that we share life with, um, for them to be a mixture of both men and women for balance? Or should we separate our small groups by gender?
2: Mm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, get, I think in a church like ours, when we think of small groups, uh, the kind of size of groups we could be thinking of, you know, whether it's... Uh, 8, 10, 12 people, maybe even up to 15. I know some small groups get up to 20, 30 people. Uh, those kind of size groups are about the sizes of a church in the New Testament, a house church, right? In the New Testament, for the first couple, of, well, in the New Testament and even past that for the first couple of centuries, uh, churches were what you could hold in a, le- in a living room in, in the Greco Roman world. So that was a church, a small group. And so, uh, absolutely. Uh, I think we would encourage small groups to be composed of of both both genders. Um, That's what it means to to round out the the diversity of the body of Christ. Um, So that being said, that doesn't mean there might not be times within the life of a small group or a house church to have moments where there's um, gender-exclusive, say, for accountability groups or smaller breakouts. I know that I was in a house church... In my twenties, uh, for about ten years, and um, we had a, a group of about thirty people, thirty-five people, but frequently would break into accountability groups, and that was gender-specific because of the things that can come up there. But um, so I think there's a kind of a uh, there can be a both-and dimension to this. But certainly, uh, the whole idea of a small group that's that's Uh, exclusive to gender, um, when it should be this uh, of a house church sort of thing, uh, I'd want to see diversity there at at that level.
0: And I would say it's not just diversity of of genders. Right, right. But uh, it's intrinsic to the kingdom that um, uh, the, the kingdom is about tearing down walls. It reverses Babel, which was the original separation of... Humanity into different ethnic groups. Um, one thing, it, part of our fallen nature is that we like we we, we, we tend to feel most comfortable in uh, homogeneous environments where people are like us and think like us and act like us and have, share our culture and all that because that's easy, right? That's easy. It doesn't take any work. Um, whereas when you to relate to folks who are uh, of a different age group than you or a different uh, social economic group than you or a different ethnicity than yours, uh, that takes a lot of work and there's a lot more room for conflict. Uh, which is why the kingdom should be all about us moving out of our self-centeredness and what is comfortable and what is convenient with our uh, proclivity towards uh, uh, homogeneous environments. And um, it should be moving us to be pursuing diversity. Uh, It it is a good in and of itself. We are more glorifying God when we're in diverse uh, environments than when we're in a homogeneous environment. Uh, It it puts the fullness of, of God's character on display. It grows us. It's part of the, the, the cruciform character that all disciples are called to have, where we sacrifice our own preferences for the good of the kingdom. That's why in worship we try to incorporate a diversity of, of, of songs from week to week uh, to week. Um, and, and so I encourage folks to always be asking the question, how can I, in my own life, in the streams of my own life, how can I uh, broaden myself and develop relationships with uh, people uh, from different ethnic groups and, and different gender and different socioeconomic groups? Mm-hmm.
1: Awesome. Okay, your next question. If a sea is a non-literal way for the Bible to describe the powers of Satan, did Jesus literally calm the sea and walk on water, or is that a metaphor as well?
0: Excellent, excellent. I, I, last week I noted how when John says in John 21 that there was no more sea, uh, when the kingdom uh, happens and the city comes down, the New Jerusalem comes down. And he's not saying that there's no, not going to be any H2O in, in, in the heavenly city. Uh, sea was a metaphor you find throughout the Old Testament of forces of chaos it's how, when they thought about Satan they thought about hostile waters that encompassed the earth and, and, and raging sea monsters Leviathan and Rahab and things like that and so it's John's way of saying that they'll just be extinguished so then the question is a really good question when Jesus walks on water was that a metaphor that was uh, uh, communicating that same truth that Jesus has power over the hostile uh, waters or did it literally happen but the thing is, the Gospels, you have to always pay attention to the genre. And the genre of the Gospels is, is uh, ancient history. They're reporting what happened. Um, and so I, I, that is a literal thing. I, I think the author intends that to be taken literally. At the same time, it is a metaphor. It's both. Because I think Jesus is here demonstrating that he is the Yahweh that trampled on the, the waters. It, uh, it says in the, uh, Habakkuk literally that Yahweh trampled on uh, the face of the waters fact like the word for waters there is yom which was the uh, uh, a canaanite name for the, the god of chaos yom and so he's trampled on the god yom and so jesus is here i think incarnating that victory he's saying he is the yahweh now embodied on earth and he tramples on uh the forces of chaos so it's both literal and metaphorical
2: absolutely anything dad amen
1: it was perfect amen perfect answer okay.
2: perfect perfect <laughs>
1: All right. In the New Testament, why don't we hear more about Jesus from his siblings, those who probably knew him well, and his character?
2: Why don't we hear more about his, about his siblings?
1: No, why don't we hear more about him from his siblings?
2: Ah, from his siblings. Um, none of his siblings, well, James wrote. Uh, so, yeah, we, we know from the Gospels, it says in one passage, that Jesus had four brothers and. Some sisters doesn't say how many sisters. So he, no, he, he at least had six siblings, possibly more. So he had, he had four, four brothers. Four brothers, yeah. Where does it say that? Somewhere.
0: <laughs> it says he got brothers, but does it specify
2: four? Well, it names some of them, yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know that. Read, read, read uh, the well, gospel sometimes. <laughs> never thought of that. You don't preach on the gospel. <laughs> you preached on Luke, dude. You should know yeah. that. So anyway, yeah, six, six siblings. Um, at one point, they show up, and uh, uh, I think this is Mark, where it says that his family came to get him when he's preaching at a house because they thought he had lost his mind. Uh, so what's pretty clear uh, is that at least his siblings initially didn't, didn't believe much of what he was doing. Uh, it seems that until after the resurrection, and he appeared to one of his brothers, James, that finally, like, oh my goodness, he's who he thought he was. And James became then a leader in the church. And, you know, one of the books of the Bible is attributed to his, his half-brother, James. Um, but probably the reason we don't hear much about uh, them from Jesus' lifetimes is because, again, it doesn't seem like they were, were taking him seriously at that point. Um, at, at that point, when they came to get him, Jesus actually turned to the people in the house that he was in and said, uh, Who's my sister, mother, and brothers? He said, Here are my sister, mother, and brothers, meaning the people who were actually following him. Uh, which was a real challenge in the first century, uh, kind of uh, dissing his biological family in favor of the family of God, those who were following him. So it's a uh, powerful teaching. There.
0: I, I, I think it says something about the, the, the realism of the Gospels that they're willing to admit yeah. that uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, his family uh, didn't follow him. <clears throat> um, that's, not, that's the kind of thing that you would expect authors who are fabricating an account to hide. You certainly wouldn't make that up. It doesn't help your case. And so it just says something about the honesty of the gospel authors that they, they acknowledge that. But to me, it makes, makes perfect sense. Uh, I have uh, shared this before where I, I empathize a lot with James. Um, you know, where, what would it be like growing up with the Son of God? You know, where, where you... Uh, I, you know wh- whoever, whoever did something wrong you know it wasn't jesus you know he's mr perfect you know, jesus never does anything wrong well he is the son of god uh and that that would create a lot of resentment i i i grew up under the spotlight of a superstar in football and you know that that, that was difficult you can never quite measure up to that well poor james is is, is growing up next to god uh, that, that'd be rough but then it also it raises this question what convinced him and the answer that we are given is the resurrection. that uh, James, finally, and that's the only uh, brother I know about, but James uh, uh, finally saw the resurrected Lord and, uh, and converted. And so we do have a, a book of the, the New Testament that's, that's written by him.
2: We'll do a Bible study after. Yeah, I,
0: I, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm excited. We'll report back next week. Yes, we will. We'll have those other three brothers. <laughs> the gonna... missing brothers of Jesus. There's a book. <laughs> What happened to his other siblings?
1: We're going to hold you accountable for that. We're going to ask you next week, how many siblings? Your next question. How do you see apostles and prophets operating in the church today? It seems like they are on the sidelines at best as compared to pastors, teachers, and evangelists.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a good question.
2: Yeah, so in Ephesians 4, you got this list of, um, sort of leadership gifts that are often called the five-fold ministry, apostles, prophets, teachers, Evangelist pastors. And um, depending on what segment of the church you are sort of grow up in today or are familiar with today, it can seem like certain of those leadership gifts are privileged over others. So I'm guessing whoever asked this question probably came from a non charismatic background. Uh, because in more non charismatic traditional evangelical churches, uh, obviously the pastor is a common uh, gift there. You see a teacher. Even an evangelist, but where's the prophets and where's the apostles? And in more more even conservative evangelical groups, they would say, "Well, apostles, that gift isn't around anymore. That was that was simply a gift for the first century. Those who would witness Jesus' earthly ministry, and prophets. Well, you know that 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 gift perhaps went out uh, of style in the first. We don't need that anymore because we have the Bible now. We don't need prophetic words from God. That's kind of the churches I grew up in. Um, On the other hand, if if you are coming out of a more charismatic background, prophecy is a very uh, common feature in your church services uh, frequently. And uh, even the gift of apostle. I know there's a whole group of folks kind of in the charismatic world who are talking about uh, kind of a renaissance of the apostolic ministry today. Um, So it really kind of depends what circles you're moving in as to which are... are, um, most, uh, most frequently heard about. We at Woodland Hills believe that all five of those gifts are, are available today um, and that, uh, that they're important for the health of the church. Uh, Paul says that they were given as gifts to the church to the building up of the whole body. And so we think that all, all of the fivefold ministry should be operating.
0: And as a matter of fact, the uh, prophecy has played a significant role in Wilderness Church, yeah. where we've had words uh, given, shared with us, or that some of our own team have had. Janice, our executive pastor, has frequently gotten words or images that we, we take seriously. Uh, we never do anything simply because of a picture or image, but it, 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 it uh, kind of opens our eyes to say, pay attention, be looking in a certain direction. And um, uh, as the church has unfolded, uh, we, we've seen that really have some, some impact. Uh, and we're right now, it, it's an interesting question because we're right now in the discussion about the, the, mm-hmm. the apostolic gift. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a distinction between the 12 apostles, the original 12 apostles, who are you know, one of a kind. Okay? That's the original, there's a reason why Jesus chose 12, replaced the 12 tribes of Israel and things like that. And, and so in the New Testament we find references to the 12. Uh, it's kind of a formulaic thing. But you also find references to then other apostles in the New Testament who aren't part of the twelve. The word literally means sent out ones. And um, uh, the question is, is, what does that look like today? Uh, we believe that a healthy ministry, uh, uh, an overseeing ministry, such as the leadership of Woodland Hills Church, should have all five of those gifts, the fivefold ministry. And so we're asking the question what's the apostolic gift? Um, Does it look like it looked like in in the Apostle Paul and what role does that have here? So we're in the process of of discussing that asking are we maybe missing something or do we already have that and whatever. The only other thing I'll say about it is this. There's uh, quite a movement out there of uh, in in the name of this apostolic ministry that Paul spoke of. uh, That is where people are stepping up and claiming to be the apostle of a certain uh, region, whether it's a, a state or a city or a couple of states. Um, And they're just declaring that. I've gotten, I'd say, a dozen letters over the last dozen years or so of people telling me that they are my apostle. Uh, Yes, God has put me as the apostle of this region, and I'd like to meet with you to discuss what that's going to look like. And my response is, no thanks. Um, If if God opens the heavens and says I'm supposed to do that, fine. But see, in the New Testament paul never goes around saying hey i'm your apostle listen to me rather his character and his gift and his uh, calling get played out as he's doing ministry and he wins people's allegiance uh, they follow him because of what they see in him it wasn't demanded in fact even his letters he he never says i demand something he always appeals to people He encourages them uh, and so there's the natural authority that someone has uh, it's not a demanded thing and anytime someone comes up and tries to leverage something on you uh, by sheer authority, claiming that God has put me in a position above you, well you need to be very careful about that because there's a whole lot of abuse going on around that yeah.
2: Yeah. good work
1: when Noah was building the ark how did all the pairs of animals know to come so quickly
0: that would be a Paul question I'm sure <laughs> How that Apolly? You're the one who loves animals, so. <laughs> you said you agreed with that. There must have been a, There must have been. You know, I, I, whenever I watch National Geographic or some of these nature you know, shows, and you hear about these animals migrating, uh, you know, thousands of miles. The, the, the salmon—it just blows me away. These salmon who, who uh, you know, go thousands of miles to go upstream, you know, and then they get mauled by bears. Uh, up, but because they, they, they have to lay their eggs in the same location that they came from. Uh, now, how do they know that? You know, fish aren't that bright. You know, it's like, and they don't have any GPS system. <laughs> um, how do they know that? It's, it's, a, it's, I think, just bizarre. These birds that fly, you know, thousands and thousands of miles to come to the exact location every year. It's just, even certain even kinds of butterflies. So I don't know how, how that works, but, uh, and there's some kind of a supernatural thing going on there. But if, uh, I don't think for an omnipotent God, that'd be too hard to pull off. That's my, my final answer. God
2: can do it. Amen. Amen.
1: Is it possible that the God of the Old Testament was really Satan in disguise?
2: <laughs> oh, we shouldn't laugh. I mean, that was the response that um, some of the early Gnostics and, and uh, there was a group of, uh, really the early, first earliest heresy in, in the early church. Uh, it was probably Gnosticism, forms of Gnosticism. And it was sort of a mixing of of Jewish-Christian thought with Greek philosophy, I suppose is kind of an easy way to explain that. And they, uh, this group, uh, so the Gnostics and Marcion and other gentlemen looked back in the Old Testament and saw some of the things God did there. Looked at Jesus on the cross and the self-sacrificial love there, and said, "This has to be two different gods: uh, a god of love and a god of war and violence." And that's why. Uh, Marcion and others, some of these early uh, second century Christians, uh, completely tossed the Old Testament out and said, this, That's an entirely different God. Now, Orthodox Christians, that the, the eventually won the day, so to speak, in terms of how to define real biblical Christianity, said, No, Jesus treated the Old Testament as inspired scripture. So we can't throw out what was Jesus' scriptures. Um, Jesus clearly thought, Uh, that the God of love that he represented was also to be found in the Old Testament. The challenge then has always been for the Orthodox Church Mm -hmm. to explain how is that possible, given some of the portraits of God we see in the Old Testament. And this is where Greg comes in. Your six hundred page book. It's
0: about so. seven hundred pages. Seven
2: hundred
0: pages. Yeah, this is the issue I've been working on for the last uh, five six years. But I, I don't think that the God of the Old Testament was you know, was Satan, but I do think that, that the folks that got it to deal with in the Old Testament did not have a clear distinction between God and Satan. <laughs> um, they they were fallen, culturally conditioned people and. Um, They didn't have a a clear understanding. It hadn't yet been revealed. And I don't think it was possible to be revealed, given where they were at at the time, about how God is perfectly good and Satan is pure evil. And the two are very different. And so they often conceive of God in terms of uh, ancient Near Eastern warrior gods who did some vicious things. Um, In the early church, once they, they accepted that the Old Testament's inspired, so you've got to deal with it, you just can't dismiss it, Uh, a number of theologians said, well, we've got to reinterpret it then in light of what we know about God in Christ. We know things that they didn't know. And so in, in light of what we know about God and knowing that this is the God, the God revealed on the cross is the same God who breathed this, we need to read the Old Testament looking for that God. And sometimes it's going to mean that we can't take the surface meaning of the text because the surface meaning reflects their fallen and culturally conditioned perspectives. We're going to have to see what's going on behind the text. And, um, and, and this is where I'm arguing in this book that what we can see here is a God who's always been willing to, just as he does on the cross, he bears the sin of his people um, uh, and thereby takes on an appearance that reflects their sin more than it reflects his own true beautiful character. Just as on the cross, God, Jesus appears to be a, a God forsaken guilty criminal. And that reflects the depth of our sin. But what reveals God to us is that we know what's going on behind the scenes. That it was God who stepped into this and owned our sin as his own. You see what I'm saying? And if that's what God is truly like, well then we should be assuming that God's always been doing this. And that'd be one way of, of, uh, of, of interpreting these passages in the Old Testament uh, that where God is depicted in terms that are very different than what we find in Christ. Well, one last thing I'll say is this. Uh, I, I've, I've read several scholars who argue, and I'm persuaded by this, that the whole point of the book of Job is to, uh, or at least one of the fundamental points of the book of Job, is to, for uh, uh, so the author is trying to show that the problem that Job's friends and Job had was that they both identified God with Satan. You know, Satan shows up in the prologue, and he accuses God of being a Machiavellian controlling manipulative deity, Right? Um, And then all throughout the book, the friends are assuming that that view of God is true because they think God's pulling all the strings. And Job thinks that that view of God is true because God's pulling all the strings. But God shows up. Well, what he says is, you guys don't know what you think talking about. uh, You know, the creation is far more vast than you are aware of. And there's a war going on that you're not familiar with. And you don't even know anything about this wager that went on in the heavenly realm that got this whole thing started. Uh, And and so he's not confirming either of these, these views. Um, and, and so it just shows it illustrates how uh, in, in that time uh, folks didn't have a real clear understanding of, of just how beautiful God was <clears throat> and how God is altogether different from the, the evil one who now oppresses this world
2: if, if, that, if that intrigues you there's 700 more pages of that to come <laughs> give me another year it'll be out
1: <laughs> if God gives more talents to some people does that mean that he loves some people more than others
0: no <laughs> Elaborate. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: well, you know, for one, one thing, worth worth, and abilities are two different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we fallen humans pretend to assign worth based on what you've got to offer. And so those people who've got a lot to offer society by the criteria of society, those people who are the sexiest and the best at throwing the football and can see the best and blah, 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 blah. Well, they've got more worth The celebrities. And, and uh, so we value them higher. Whereas those folks who uh, have little to offer or who have disabilities, mental disabilities or whatever, uh, well, they're, they're kind of devalued. And we've just got to know that God doesn't agree with that rating scale at all. Uh, human beings have worth because they're human beings. And we see that in, in, on Calvary. Our only criteria for a person's worth should be what God thinks about them as revealed on Calvary, where we find that all people have unsurpassable worth. It could not possibly be improved on. So whether you're a person who is, uh, is near brain dead uh, and, and is just needs to be cared for all their life uh, because they're in a bed and can't do anything for themselves, or whether you're the best uh, teacher or, or football player or model in the universe, it makes absolutely no difference. The worth is the same. Um, and the, other thing is that the way talents are divided up in this world, uh, I don't think God is the only variable that determines that. Uh, there's other processes uh, that uh, affect uh, how you're born, when you're born, uh, what you're born with, and all of that kind of stuff. And so it's not just God uh, uh, arbitrarily divvying up things in, in various random ways.
2: In, my, opinion, in my humble opinion. Uh, not only would I say that it does not mean God loves uh, people less who have so-called less talents as we measure them. But what you find in Scripture is that God reverses that that, uh, approach. So frequently, in in, in in the Old Testament context, let's say, biblical context, really through the New Testament, the firstborn son was usually the one who in their culture received the, ma- the massive inheritance who was given the blessing all that stuff and what God does frequently is he'll turn that right on its head and so um, although Esau was born first of the twins Jacob and Esau Jacob is the one that receives uh, the, the, the passing on the lineage of the Messiah yeah, so yeah. God will, will reverse so frequently the, uh, the expectations of a common culture Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 he says that uh, the body of Christ has many members with different gifts. And then he goes on to say that um, unlike the world, in God's family, those with what we would consider the more humble or common gifts are actually to be honored above Mm -hmm. the rest of us. And so again, he's reversing uh, the worldly way of seeing these things. Good. The least of these. Yeah. Yeah. Good.
1: Well, I want to thank all of you guys for being here and for your questions. These are awesome questions, um, and I really want to encourage everyone to make sure that you check out on the website. We're not repeating any questions, and sometimes I might get questions during 9 o'clock, and they'll be asked during 11 o'clock, so definitely check that out if your question wasn't answered here during this particular service. Let's go so fast, you guys. I, I just goes, can't it's, believe it. It's crazy. I felt like I just so
0: got up fast. here. There really are. Like last night, we got some incredibly good questions. I'm sure we'll get some uh, others in, in the 11 o'clock service. These were incredibly good question. so it, it's uh, the one time where we really paid to, to to look at all three services because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of got wrong gets covered we can do yeah. so little in this one little space of time it's crazy
1: but we can do one more i
0: think okay let's do all one more right. oh yeah we're gonna do one more <laughs>
2: oh, we're gonna nail this baby all right
0: bring it
1: what can a person do if they can't get past childhood trauma does it come to a point where you just have to accept that this is just the way things are until heaven
0: mm. Mm. Okay. oh yeah well um Oh, that's a very very good question. Uh, it, it's one that I, mean, I empathize a lot with, uh, especially uh, kids who have uh, been abused, uh, had, um, or whatever the trauma was, whether it was an accident or whether it was an abuse situation. Uh, scars that happen early on in life can be tenacious. Uh, and... Uh, If we don't, aren't proactive in in, in doing something to reframe them and get free of them, uh, we will suffer under them all our our life. And I've shared this before where I've been amazed at how uh, I'll go through, in my 30s I went through a real big growing period where I was becoming aware of some of the stuff that was in my head and, and brought Jesus in and experienced some incredible healing. And then you think, oh, I'm done with it. Man, I'm free. Today. It's gone. And then three years later, all of a sudden, you get another layer. And it's like, oh, I thought I was done with this. And you go through another healing process. And then you think, okay, now I'm done. Now I'm done. Fine. Now I'm free. But then you know, a couple of years later, uh, you, you go through you, you, another discovery. I shared uh, two years ago with the sermon, uh, the Stick in the String, uh, about another layer of uh, healing that needed to happen. Um, it's about evangelizing your internal self. You know, the, the adult you knows the good news, the gospels, and knows who you are in Christ and knows all of that. But, but our brains are such that, that, that it doesn't mean that the, the seven-year-old you ha, ha, knows that. And there still will be memories, neural nets in, in your brain that under the right circumstances will get triggered. And you're going to be a seven-year-old experiencing the same trauma uh, that you experienced when you were seven or five or two or whatever. Uh, and so we need to eat, bring the good news to all parts of ourself, you see, and, and, and uh, let the mustard seed of the kingdom grow even in our inner self. And so what I would say to this person is this. I, I, it may be the case that uh, you'll have some element of these scars all your life. It may be. Um, I, I think some, some damages are, are, are um, until the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom in fullness, uh, will be, there'll be a cross that we carry. But on the other hand, I would encourage you not to settle for that. Uh, and not to say, well, this is just the way it is. Uh, you know, on the one hand, fully love yourself as you are with the scar and, and embrace life as it is with the scar. Uh, accept yourself as you are with the scar. Uh, don't be sitting around saying, someday I'm going to be happy when the scar is removed. No, you find this now. But even as you fully accept yourself, because God accepts you are as you are in this wounded state, so you accept who you are in this wounded state. But at the same time, I encourage you, To always be open to and even seeking more healing. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that I have found it to to be the the most powerful is through imaginative prayer. And I talk about this in the book, Seeing is Believing. Where you uh, take all all of our scars, all of our memories, all of that stuff is encoded in memories. And they're powerful because uh, they're, they're vivid and graphic. They're locked in our imagination. And we remember them when the brain is triggered to remember them in certain circumstances. And when that happens, we are, for all intents and purposes, living that seven-year-old self who's terrified of mom or, or, or what have you. Uh, it's important to get those memories and then invite Jesus back into them. And the Holy Spirit is a genius at doing this. And, and, and Jesus doesn't change the past, but he can change the meaning of the past by changing the message of the memory. And, and profound healing can happen. Um, and I share some of that in my own life in the, in the, the book, Sing is Believing. So embrace yourself as you are now. Uh, don't put uh, your happiness and joy and, and fullness of life on hold until you are fully healed. On the other hand, uh, pursue constant healing. Um, and and don't, don't settle for it. Uh, don't ever just coast. Uh, there's more that can happen in your life, more healing and more freedom.
2: Amen. Good word. Ask away.
1: All right. Your first question. What is the church's view on speaking in tongues?
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, this has been uh, a controversial question for the last hundred years. Uh, The Pentecostal movement, which really arose in the first decade of the 20th century, um, was largely characterized by, well, those are the folks that speak in tongues. And then the charismatic movement, which came after that in the 50s and 60s, was characterized by this phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Uh, Wooden Hills, our, our, we're a church that has been influenced both by the charismatic uh, Pentecostal perspective. In fact, Greg, you really got saved in a context where that was part of what it meant to be a Christian. I was a holy roller. Absolutely. That sure was. And uh, others of us, Uh, come from from more conservative evangelical traditions? Well, that doesn't happen. Uh, In fact, uh, I grew up in a church context initially where um, the teaching was that those kind of gifts, the more miraculous or supernatural gifts, uh, kind of died out in the first couple hundred years of of the church's history, and we don't see those anymore except by those Pentecostals. We're not quite sure what they're doing, but um, they're nice folk. You just don't go to their churches. Uh, And Woodland Hills... um, has has been a blend of that from really its beginning, which I think is absolutely wonderful. My earliest church experience was one where the, our church split over this issue, and it was a, just a nasty, nasty uh, falling out of friends and family really over this this issue. So I'm glad to say, in, in Woodland Hills, uh, we do hold as a leadership position. We hold that all the gifts mentioned in the New Testament are available today, um, but we don't hold that uh, there's one special gift. Let's say tongues which everyone should have. We think that Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 12 that um, all the gifts are available, but that God disperses them as God wills, and that we're, we're certainly encouraged to seek the gifts and to be open to God, but there's no one gift that sort of typifies the really elite Christian. That's, that's God's business.
0: The only thing I'd add to that is that um, uh, we have to always remember that the, the New Testament church uh, was... Uh, Composed of house churches, groups of, you know, probably around 30. Like our, our sojourner's ministry is the kind of what a New Testament church would look like. We have communities of about 30. And whenever uh, any New Testament author is writing about the church, they have that in mind. And the what are called the chrismata that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, the supernatural gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, whatever. We really believe those are for today and that they're important. But the proper context for their operation is in groups of that size. When Paul's teaching about how the gifts are supposed to be used, he's not envisioning a crowd like this. um, uh, Where most people don't know one another and there's no way to discern what's going on. It can result in total chaos. Um, He he struggles to keep order among the Corinthians even though their their churches are like 30. Now, You make that 300 or 3,000 and you've got a whole can of worms on, on your hands. Uh, and so we don't think those gifts are, are their, their application isn't in a group like this. Uh, the application is in a, like a house church or in your personal ministry. Um, and sometimes in, in prayers up here, folks might get a word of knowledge or whatever, uh, but um, uh, that's why we don't, we don't open up the floor here for people to prophesy or whatever. If people have a prophetic word, it needs to be discerned by somebody before it goes to the press. And so we ask them to submit that to leadership. And um, sometimes we've seen that happen.
2: Yeah.
1: All right, your next question. The Bible states that we should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why do we choose to not follow it even though Jesus did?
0: Why don't you choose that? Well, Why are you breaking the word of God? Why do you choose not to follow it?
2: Yeah. Do you want to be a sinner? Is that your impact? This is a good question. And um, a lot will hang on, on your view on the Sabbath. A lot will hang on how you understand the Sabbath's role in the Old Testament. Um, I'll just say that from my perspective, as I read its role in, in the Old Testament, I think this is um, it's Exodus maybe 30, 31, uh, where, where God gives us a law, and he says to Moses as he gives this law, this, this resting on the, the Sabbath day, he said, this will be the sign of the covenant that I'm, I'm offering to you at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel. And see, every covenant that God um, devises for humans... Uh, each one of them there's a number of them through scripture has a sign a particular sign which is a visible physical permanent ongoing reminder of what the covenant means and so i, I read that as the, the, the designated god-ordained sign of the sinai covenant when god creates a new covenant in jesus christ i think there's a new sign that comes with that i read that to be the lord's supper and so um if you want to keep the sabbath i think that's fine but um, that was designed for the Jewish people under the Sinai covenant as the sign of their particular covenant. That's why Paul, when he talks about Sabbaths and days of uh, special days, he says, we're not under that obligation as new covenant people because that's a, it's a different covenant. Uh, and so that's how I yeah, read. Colossians 2.16, Paul says, yeah. uh, in light of what, what Christ
0: has done on the cross, don't let anyone judge you about Sabbath days or uh, about any particular holy days. Uh, some people uh, esteem one day to be above another. Others esteem all days to be alike. Everyone's got to follow their own conscience. And we find in the early church that after the resurrection, uh, the, the uh, worship shifts from Saturday to Sunday because that's the day that the Lord was, was raised on. And, um, um, and so they're aware that this, this Sabbath uh, as a sign of the covenant was something that was intended uh, for the Old Testament but not necessarily carried over into the New Testament. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right, your next question how can hell be defined as separation from God while also maintaining that God is omnipresent?
0: Mm-hmm. How can hell be... Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take a stab at this <laughs> and see what... Um, you know, the, 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 you find this in, throughout the whole scripture is that on the one hand, uh, we're, we're taught in various ways that God is at all times and all places. And the author, says, even if I make my bed in Hades or Sheol, uh, that he is with me. Uh, and sometimes that's translated even if I make my bed in hell he's with me so there's this sense in which God is everywhere on the other hand there's also this uh, uh, teaching running throughout scripture that there's a a qualitative sense in which God is sometimes more in one place rather than others Um, the room was filled with the presence of God or the power of God came down we talked this way today and we just sang a song you know God uh, send your spirit well isn't God everywhere already why would we ask him to send his spirit if he's already here um well, he is already here in the sense that he's the one who holds all things into existence, right? Um, but uh, the, 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 there's a qualitative sense in which he's only there when people invite him. And that's the sense also in which he withdraws his presence. You find that throughout the, the uh, uh, scripture, where as a judgment, God withdraws his presence and allows uh, people to experience the death consequences of their own, their own choice. So uh, I think hell is, is separation from God. Um, in that qualitative sense. It's it's a godless place. And really, it's it's more of a state of being than it is a location. Uh, It's it's, uh, experiencing life. uh, God God is the source of all that's good, all that's beautiful, all that's true, all that's lovely, all that's meaningful. And to the degree that we're separated from God, we're experiencing life devoid of meaning, devoid of beauty, devoid of truth, devoid of joy, and that is hell. That is hell, And, and so that's how the two, I think, are compatible.
1: Is it possible to discern God's will through non-scriptural means, such as mediums or tarot cards?
0: Not recommended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think
2: uh, a, a constant challenge of, of believers through the centuries is how to hear the voice of God, how to, how to know God's will for, for our lives. And um, one of the, the consistent teachings of Scripture, Old through New Testament, is one of the options here is not through what you might call uh, occultic or divination means. Um, that that, that if, you, if you really believe that the spiritual realm is as populated as Jesus taught it was, that there's an angelic realm that has both good angels that are messengers of God, but also demonic angels that are messengers of the enemy, then you don't just throw open yourself to the spiritual world and whatever happens to pop in say, well, that, that's a message from God. Because it might certainly be a supernatural message but it might be from a deceiver, uh, an agent of of the the kingdom of darkness. So God's means uh, of discerning are very much uh, in in submission to God and to his ways. That doesn't simply mean, however, that um, we do it sort of alone. Uh, I think God loves communal discernment. Um, And so uh, not, not binding God into one way of speaking to us, but rather opening ourselves up to a number of ways God could speak to us In sort of the scriptural modes of speaking, Uh, brother or sister who comes to us with with a word of wisdom, or a word of knowledge, or or yes, the still small voice that we can hear in our Mm -hmm. in our hearts. So there's a a range of of ways to do it, but there's also some very clear means of not doing that.
0: That's a really important point these days, I think, because uh, we're kind of at a period in history where um, a lot of the traditional, a lot of folks are having issues with the traditional church and legitimate uh, problems with the traditional church. And, and some of the ways they presented Christ, and as that's crumbling, people are still continuing to be spiritual. In fact, all indications are that people are becoming more spiritual, uh, more open to spiritual matters, uh, but they're exploring those outside the parameters of Christianity. And I'm very happy to see that people have a new interest and a passion for spiritual matters, but as Paul just said, we have got to be very careful, uh, aware that we're in a war zone context, and you're dabbling with fire whenever you go outside of the, the parameters of the Word of God, and uh, try to discern God's will uh, in ways that he's, he's forbidden. Uh, he wants his, his, his sheep to hear his voice, uh, but we hear his voice from him, not from some divination or mediums or tarot cards or something of the sort. Good, good question.
1: Okay. My wife was baptized as a baby in the Lutheran church and went through confirmation. Do you think she needs to be baptized again as an adult?
0: Well, you know, the way we see it here, we are convinced that the New Testament form of baptism, word means baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse. And, um, and we think it's, that's an important part of the baptism experience. It's, it's where a person is inaugurated into the bride of Christ. It's like the, the betrothal ceremony, uh, in the Old Testament when, when people would become betrothed to one another. And, um, the 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 immersion into water and the coming up out of the water is is part of the point of the whole thing because we're identifying with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans six is all about this. Going down into the water is where we're saying his death was my death, and we're dying to our old self. And we come up out of the water uh, out of the water. We're saying that now we're identifying with his resurrection power, which is, empowers us to live this this Christ like life. Um, and so it, 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 we think that's an important matter. And it, it's, it's an act of discipleship. Jesus says make disciples and baptize them uh, in Matthew 28. So we think a person has to be old enough to be disciplined, to, be, to submit to the discipline of, of, of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that we see childhood baptisms as being uh, of no value at all. Uh, we, we see it as, as more of a... It's like arranged marriages in, 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 in a lot of cultures, even to this day. Uh, marriages are arranged before, even with little kids, before they're of, of, of an age of their own accountability. Um, and it just shows the intention of the parents, saying, we, we betroth our child uh, to this uh, future groom. And so these parents who baptize their children are saying, we pledge to have our child be married to Jesus. But uh, even in those cultures, there's later on a ceremony where the person takes it on themselves. They say, I agree with my parents. Uh, I'm going to now own this for, for myself. And so even folks who find a lot of meaning in their, in their infant baptism, we encourage them to then own that as adults and to say, yes, I'm not going to ride the coattails of my parents' pledge. I pledge it for myself. And so to be baptized as an adult.
2: I think... Uh Woodland, our practice is, is to encourage baby dedication. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a ceremony where the parents do pledge in front of witnesses of the church body, but we don't have a water ceremony there. As we read it, uh, the water ceremony or the baptism really is, it's really the, uh, the initiation ceremony into the new covenant, uh, much like, like a wedding ceremony that one wants to do when they're of age to actually uh, consciously say, yes, I want to be part of the bride of, of Jesus Christ.
1: Your next question. Jesus tells us that his yoke is light, but then also tells us to take up our cross. How are we to hold both of these as true?
2: Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, Paul. What do you think? <laughs> yes. You're always talking about the cross. <laughs> now talk about the, the yoke. <laughs> um, my yoke is easy. My
0: burden is like, well... Uh, that's a really good question. You uh, <laughs> my first stab at it, and then it'll give time Paul to think and come up with the right answer. But, uh, you know, I think there is this paradox uh, about um, the... My, my gut impression is that there's this paradox that characterizes the call of Jesus uh, that is, on the one hand, he says, if you lose your life, you'll find it. If you lose your life, you'll find it. And, and the losing is, is where we die to our old self, and we die to... Uh, all of yeah. our old cravings. Uh, we have to crucify our self-interest and living for ourselves. This is the essence of the kingdom. And we're committing to live now a life that's centered on God's will and following the example of Jesus. And that can be uh, very hard. It's, 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 it's oh, Paul says, I die daily that I may live to the Lord. So there is this, this difficulty in it. On the other hand, that very act is what opens up real life to us. Uh, it, it, uh, you enter... You don't know the depth of joy you can have in life Until you've gone through that And there's a joy and there's a peace There's a power, a liberation, a freedom that happens When you're no longer clinging to stuff to try to get life And you're no longer even clinging to your own life Like you've got to live There's a freedom when, when there's a peace inside Regardless of the circumstances you're in um, and, and so part of Jesus' call here is Yeah, it's a call to death It's a call to crucify yourself But the burden is light In that it, it leads to everlasting life and, and all that life is really all about um, it's light also in the fact that Jesus is contrasting his call to the call of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all these other leaders who had all of these uh, external rules that people had to obey, all these meticulous rules. And Jesus is always slamming them for that, saying, why are you burdening you know, these people? Uh, as though, as though you know, conforming to all these rules is going to give them eternal life. There's no life found in obeying the rules. Uh, there's fullness of life in dying to, to, to yourself. And, and so, I think that's part of what he's getting at. My call isn't at all like the burdensome thing of the Pharisees. Um, you know, it's, it's light. On the other hand, it does cost you your life. I was shooting from the cuff on that. I was, was going to say, say for spiffball. Yeah, that, yeah. that, that
2: sounds pretty good. Yeah, I think that's true. That's and, and, I've had time now to come up with the right answer. <laughs> um, it, Jesus, right? He, for Jesus, love, it, the paradox of love is really, I think, uh, why Jesus talks so paradoxically sometimes. So in one sense, love is, is the most easy thing there is because you've been, we've all been wired for unconditional love, both to receive it and then to give it. On the other hand, for broken people who are trapped in self-centered sin, which is all of us born into this world, being conformed into the image of Christ to become a loving person can feel like you're, you're being killed. Uh, so the irony is, as I'm learning to become loving like Jesus, I'm having to die to and give up to my self-centeredness, which feels like it's killing me. But in fact, that's what's killing me, is, is the self-centeredness. So the dying is actually life. Uh, and so, once again, Jesus, is this right? Lose your life to find it. It's amazing how he's right so much, isn't it?
0: God, he's always right. Jesus
1: is right. Good teaching skills
0: he's got. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, if, you, if the stories in the Old Testament do not hold up to historical and scientific standards, what makes them still worth reading or studying?
2: Hmm?
0: Because they are the word of God. He, he, here's the thing is that, that uh, when Jesus affirms, and uh, all other New Testament authors affirm the scripture as the word of God, they're affirming the text. Uh, that that text is is breathed by God. That's the word that Paul uses in, in 1 Timothy 3.16. Second. 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy? All right. Uh, it, it's breathed by God. Um, and, and so I, I take it on their authority that this text is breathed by God. Uh, and that's just based on their authority. It's not based on any kind of criteria I might want to impose on it. And so we come along and we come up with the idea that, oh, it's got to correspond to history exactly or correspond to science exactly or whatever. Uh, but uh, I think it's illegitimate to impose our criteria what we think the Word of God should be uh, and and to impose that on on the Word rather than just saying, what is it in fact, and and be okay with that. I mean, God always, He he hardly ever conforms to our expectations. Um, He's always surprising us. And, uh, I mean, who would have thought he would have saved the world by dying on a cross? You know, that just doesn't fit our categories. So, it, 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 the word doesn't have to fit our expectations of what we think the word of God should be. We might like exact correlation with history or whatever, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean it conforms to that. Um, the other thing I'd just say is that it, it's always important when you're assessing any ancient literature to assess it on its own terms, not on modern terms. Mm-hmm. And the ancient way of doing history was was different than the modern way of doing history. They... they uh, they, they intended to report what happened, but not in a meticulous kind of way that we do today. They, they were, well, one author uh, described it more as an expressionistic portrait rather than a photograph. You know, modern historians are, are at least intending to, to uh, give you a photograph picture, what you would have seen if you would have been there. But ancient authors were, were much more interested in the meaning of, of what happened for the present. And so they wrote and addressed present concerns. They, they, they do have a, a, a historical interest in, in reporting the happenings of the past, but uh, they're more intent on bringing the meaning of it out and applying it to the present. That's why you often find in ancient histories uh, that they combined literal stuff with, with figurative and symbolic stuff. Um, because the, sometimes a symbolic or allegorical uh, story can bring the meaning of something out in a way that's better than a, a photograph could. And so it's important just to let the Word of God be the Word of God that it is, rather than uh, uh, try to force it to be the Word of God that you wish it was.
2: Amen. And i would just add to that that um, the story of God, which is well, the whole point of this last uh, six weeks, this series, to kind of get a sense of the broad story of God, that story is supposed to be that which God's people live within is sort of their way of seeing the purpose and reality of life. And so, you know, there's some stories that we know. For example, Jesus' parables... Parable is something that's a, uh, it's a fictitious story, right? When Jesus tells the parable of the good yeah. Samaritan, he wasn't talking about an actual Samaritan. He was, he was making up a story on the spot. But the purpose and meaning of that story is powerful and crucial to what it means to be the people of God and who is your neighbor. It's not just the one you're ethnically tied to or the one your nation tells you. In fact, your neighbor is often the opposite of that. It's, it's whoever, it's everyone, Right. And so there's an example we know, a fictitious story, a parable, is something that now guides our lives as to what it means to be people in this world and, and who do we love. So that's why the story of God, regardless of what genre is, regardless of whether it's historical or not, can be the very thing that guides our way of seeing life and, and how to value things that God values.
0: Yeah, I, one more thing to add about that, and here's why I think that this is an important question, is that I am so grieved by how often I hear and even meet people who walk away from the yeah. faith because they took a college course uh, in the Bible as literature and became convinced that the Exodus story doesn't correspond to archaeology or some other story isn't uh, uh, solidly rooted in history, and they, further, they're, they're, they give up their faith in Jesus because of that. And, and it's just tragic. It's just tragic. When, when, when the you people are... happened to you, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, it was told that if Genesis 1 and uh, it wasn't all literally true, the whole Bible is a book of lies. And, and, and so when people have this false expectation about what the Bible is supposed to be, uh, then it often crumbles when they take uh, you know, a class at a secular university or just read a book, and they walk away from the kingdom of God uh, unnecessarily. Um, And so that's why in my book, uh, Benefit of the Doubt, I talk a lot about how um, it's the text that's inspired, and God uses it to teach us and to point us to Jesus, uh, but to be very careful about not setting up false expectations that are going to have people crash into the ground uh, when they, they can't make the pieces all fit together.
2: Really important.
1: It seems like quantum entanglement points in the direction of how we are one in Christ. Is this true? Can physics help validate our faith?
0: <laughs> quantum yes. entanglement. Quantum entanglement. There you go. Uh, the quantum entanglement has to do with the uh, EPR experiment where they, uh, if you take uh, these, these two particles uh, that have been entangled and they're spinning in opposite polarities and you shoot them in opposite directions, what you do uh, to one, if you adjust the, the uh, spin of one, uh, the other is automatically adjusted. Uh, even though they can be separated by light years. In some sense, they're still entangled. It's a real. In, can I get an amen on that one? Uh, hallelujah. Come on, bring <laughs> right. it home. And so this person is saying, you know, does that maybe explain how we're one in Christ? And, and then, and how, how does physics help co- collaborate uh, the gospel? It, here's the thing that is, uh, on the one hand, I think contemporary science especially gives us some cool analogies to begin to think about some of these things. Uh, you know some recent biology helps us understand maybe original sin or how we're all one in Adam and and uh, and and so there can be things that are that that confirm aspects of the biblical narrative Sheldrake's morphogenetic transformational field uh, can help us understand how the human race is all one in Adam and then one in Christ and all these other kind of things are very exciting but you've got to be careful about not claiming too much for that. It's not that these uh, new science theories prove some of these biblical doctrines. They just sort of illustrate them, gives us analogies to talk about them, and maybe in some ways collaborate with them. But I, I would encourage people not to leverage uh, the credibility of your faith on uh, scientific theories because those can change, yeah. and you don't want your faith you know, being flushed down the toilet uh, because the theory changed, right? The, the, so it's kind of a, a both-and thing. But I find it very exciting.
1: Um, why did it take Jesus so long to reveal himself to humanity? Why didn't God just send him right after Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden? Mm.
2: There
0: you go. Why this long story? Bible could have been a whole lot shorter. Yeah. Could have been four chapters. Paul, chapter 3, chapter 4, were redeemed. Come on, Paul, <laughs> tell us what's going on
2: here. Yeah. Well, interesting, in the third chapter of Genesis where the, the fall happens, within a matter of verses, uh, God is giving... Uh, the first, what we call the, the first gospel, uh, proto-evangelium, the first gospel, he's promising already to Adam and Eve that the day will come when a seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so already God has promised this. It does raise the question, why, why so long, right? When Jesus finally does show up in the New Testament, the New Testament authors use this phrase that Jesus came in the fullness of time, like there was something about that time that was the right time and uh... i think on one hand we've got to say uh... part of god's calculus there is just it's beyond us because he's not just thinking i don't think about the earthly uh... context mm. i think he's, he's thinking about the whole cosmic spiritual w- yeah, war yeah. so we don't know what was going on in the heavenlies uh, between the angelic realm and the kingdom of darkness where god said okay now is the right time um, but i'll say this it is fascinating at least when you think of this purely in earthly terms when jesus comes to the mediterranean world in the first century when he does he comes at a time when the roman uh empire is is in play and there's some things that are true now about that part of the quote unquote known world uh, that weren't true before Uh, because of the roman empire and the, the fact that it spanned from britain to virtually india Uh, There was a common road system, which allowed common travel, uh, relatively quick travel. There was a common language, Greek, that for the first time enabled someone to move, again, from one end of the empire to the other, speaking one language, not like 14 million dialects you'd have to learn. So Paul can virtually move through in one generation, spreading the gospel with one language. So there's some really interesting things and features about that time and that place. For the spread of the gospel, I think.
0: You also find some early church fathers reflecting on this, and it's written in the New Testament, where uh, like uh, uh, Irenaeus in the second century uh, talks about how, in the same way that we as individuals have to grow through different stages, so also humanity has to grow uh, through certain stages. In some sense, we're 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 a, a one, uh, or like one giant person. And uh, so in the process of redemption, God had to grow us, line upon line, precept upon precept, Isaiah says. And, and prepare us for the coming of Christ. And now that the bride is here, I think God's still preparing us. And he's looking for a bride of a certain constituency and, and whatever. And when the time's right, he's going to come back a second time. So really, the, the question about why did it take him so long to come the first time is, is parallel to the question of why is it taking him so long to come a second time? Uh, and and uh, he just got to say God knows what he's doing.
2: He's growing us. He's teaching us. He's preparing us. And he'll know when the time is right. And Einstein would want to remind us of the relativity of time here, right? So would Moses, in what, Psalm 90, where Moses says, A day for the Lord is a thousand years. A thousand years for a day. So what seems like a long time to us you know, is an eye blink for God. So. True that. Okay. Which suggests you're wrong about foreknowledge. Right? Oh, you're off your
0: rocker. <laughs> relativity theory has nothing to do with the future. Believe me. Just, Read just, some just, more Einstein, just, Einstein. You guys well, are like,
1: okay all right. how are we to interpret the text from revelation when it speaks of Satan getting released again upon the earth for a thousand years
2: Mm. you're the master of the book of Revelation
0: Uh, he always turns it to me when there's a tough question (laughs) Greg you're the one who said it (laughs) you know um, yeah there's this uh, being re-released sort of a thing Uh, after the millennium he's released once again um, and the only thing I've read that has made sense of that to me, uh, uh, Richard Bacham says that it's, it's a, uh, a literary strategy that John uses uh, to drive home like an emphatic point that uh, the defeat is absolutely final. Like, it, it, it's a literary strategy to say that uh, even if, even after the millennium, he's given one more chance or, or allowed uh, one more access to the earth, uh, and yet once again he's defeated. So it's like a, putting it in a, an apostrophe at the end of uh, uh, an exclamation, exclamation mark at the end of the whole thing. Uh, but I myself am, am, am not an expert on that at all. I'm kind of rather mystified by it. The, the, the point I've been focusing on is just the symbolic quality of all of that material. And the, the, as I shared last week, the incredible way that John takes violent images and subverts it uh, so that it means it's opposite. Uh, but as to the details of, of that, uh, I, that's the only thing that comes to my mind that I've read about that. You know anything about it?
2: I... There you go. <laughs> best you know, I would. Have, uh, you know, Greg mentioned Richard Bach. Uh If you're ever looking for a... A uh, well-balanced and really insightful look in the book of Revelation. He's got this little book called what, The Theology, Theology of, of the Book of Revelation. Yeah. Uh, amazing book. This guy spent uh, a lot of time uh, studying this, this text for a number of years. And uh
0: You know, there's also, I, I forgot to mention this last week, I mentioned the first two services and totally forgot about it in this service, so it didn't even get on the podcast. So I'll take this opportunity to mention this. That uh, um uh, most of the books out there that uh, uh, give the kind of reading of Revelation that I gave last week are real scholarly stuff that's not really accessible to, to non-specialists. But the the best popular level book I've ever found in the book of Revelation is by uh, a guy named Vern Eller, E-L-L-E-R. And it's called The Most Revealing Book in the Bible, uh, Making Sense of the Book of Revelation. It's an older book, um, uh, but it's been re-released and uh, uh, it's available now. And so those who want to dig deeper into it, it's, it's a very... Easy read, and yet full of insight. And I have no idea what he says about the unleashing of Satan after the millennium. (laughs) I don't remember.
1: All right. It looks like we just have a few minutes left. And so, first of all, I want to thank all of you guys for your participation. Yes, it goes so fast. It goes so quickly. I just... It blows my mind. I'm always like, "What? Only really, five minutes?" And we just got flooded with questions, and they are so good. And so, I just thank you guys so much for for your participation, for your interest. Um, it's really, really great to see that, and it's great that we have a church here that likes to think, that likes to ask questions. So, thank you guys. This is awesome. All
0: right. I I'd also encourage you to. Um, we'll have all three services on the the podcast. Um, and there was excellent questions asked in, in all three services. And so this is uh, one of those occasions where it, it would do you well to uh, sit down and listen to all three because we made sure that we didn't repeat questions each time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you can benefit from what was said in the other services.
1: Yep. Okay. So for your last question for today, is deeply grieving a loss on earth a sign of being unspiritual?
0: Mm-hmm. What's the other well, uh, no. Uh, no. No, no, no. I, I, see, I, I think that um, death was not uh, supposed to be part of this creation. Um, in God's original design, um, there wasn't supposed to be any death. Uh, there, it was supposed to be all life, reflecting the life of God. Um, and we're made in the image of God. And so I think death always strikes us as unnatural. And those of us who have had loved ones die... Uh, you you know what that's like where it's almost surreal. It's like there's something unreal to it, um, and 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 it's it's like having a part of yourself amputated. It's it's so unnatural. It's just it's and so grieving that grieving it deeply is. is in fact, to not grieve that is a, 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 maybe a sign that you're uh, weak in the faith or that there's something um, you know maybe uh, wounded about you. It, it's it's it, it's. I, I've known people who think because they think that you know we're, we're we believe in eternal life, which is true, and all of that, that they have to put on a happy face when their child dies or when uh, a loved one dies, and and uh, that concerns me, uh, where you, you stuff the grief and stuff the sorrow because you think that a real Christian, you know, who believes in eternal life, well, then you know you're you're always got to be smiling. And that's just not the case. The fact that we know that, that he's overcome death and it's not eternal, the fact that we know that doesn't mean that this doesn't feel unnatural and wrong and terrible. Uh, it does, and, and so it's appropriate to grieve that. Um, but I would say this, that, that it, it can help. Suffering, profound grief is one thing, but to be brought into total despair is a different thing. Mm-hmm. And, and if the loss of a loved one uh, completely makes your life not worth living, and to the point where you don't think you can go on, here's where I would encourage you... Well, what's probably happening there is that uh, you maybe believe in eternal life, but it's not real to you. Because yeah, we can have beliefs that, that, that we theoretically believe, but we don't really experience them as real. And uh, to the degree that we don't uh, have a sense of, of eternal life as real, well then, to that degree... Uh, what's real to us is that this loss is final. It's the fin- finality of death that causes the despair. And so if a person is experiencing uh, the despair, it tells me that that what's real to them is that this loss is final and their theoretical belief isn't, isn't helping them at all get out of that. And so I would encourage folks in, in, in the situation, as I mentioned last week, to uh, envision the future and, and dream a dream uh, to really get a concrete image uh, in your imagination the imagination that gift that god gave us where spiritual realities become experienced as real uh and 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 dream the dreams and however beautiful and good your dreams are just know that they're not even close you're you're just pointing in the right direction you you couldn't possibly uh uh, actually capture the glory and the beauty and the joy that will be there and envision you know uh the holy spirit to give you a, a concrete picture where you see that this death here was a stepping stone to that and that this is temporary because to the degree that that hope is is real, that to that degree, then there's still a suffering of loss, uh, but but knowing that it's not permanent uh, is uh, c- can get you through it, and it, it gives you motivation to go on. And um, yeah, so so let the Holy Spirit make that real to you, uh, so you can live with some joy in your heart, even in the midst of grieving uh, the loss. The
2: only thing I'd add to that is that's not just a good piece of uh, advice. That's Jesus' example, right? The shortest verse in the in the Bible out of the Gospel of John is Jesus wept. Mm -hmm. And the context there is his friend Lazarus has just died. And what's ironic is Jesus knows he's on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so I talk about, you know, like, why would Jesus weep? Because he's in the midst of the two sisters who are brokenhearted. He's in the midst of seeing the pain that death brings into the world. So even though he knows Lazarus is going to be alive in a few days, uh, Jesus enters into the pain of that moment. Mm-hmm. So I think Jesus' very example gives us this balance that, that Greg's talking about.
0: Excellent, excellent. I'd like to uh, close with a word of prayer. Amen. 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 Uh, and uh, a- a- as we close, uh, can we ask the prayer teams to come up here? And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, I encourage you to, uh, to come up here and share with these folks. Um, and let them pray for you. Or if you want to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, which is way different than just being a believer, and this is a commitment to follow them, come up here and share with these folks, and, and they'll help you get started on the, the kingdom walk. Really appreciate an environment where we can think out loud and uh, uh, you know, just be able to question things. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. No, faith faith is, encompasses doubt and, and needs uh, questioning and, and investigating things in order to grow. Could you stand? And I would say, Father, as we go out of this place, I pray, Lord, that we would do it with a commitment to reflect your love to all people at all times and all situations, God. Help us to be your faithful bride, walking in the power of your spirit, loving on people the way you loved on us. Um, as we now leave this world to be, or leave this church to go on a world uh, that is uh, calling us to be light in the midst of darkness. Let it be so, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.